Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word. Let's pray. Um, gracious God, we pray that you would speak. We recognize that unless you speak, there's nothing of any true eternal significance to be said. So may your word be laid before us and may we hear from you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, thank you. My wife and I uh, love getting to come and be here with you. Uh, we consider it a real privilege, a real honor. Thank you for uh, your sending of charity our direction. We're very excited about that. And um, we don't want this for you, but we hope you grieve a little. Because that, we've always said, you want to send out your best. And uh, we've really been thrilled with our time with charity and, and the need we have in Ethiopia that she's going to be able to fill is, is quite tremendous. And I would, if I had more time, I would love to share with you just God's timing in bringing her to our church at a very critical time and juncture. We're just so grateful for that. So well, one of the things um, 
living overseas, when you come back to the United States, Margaret and I have realized there's a, a few questions that people will ask. We're always grateful for those questions. They're uh, great questions, but we've almost learned that there's a few of them that are almost always going to come. One of those that we hear often is, are you, aren't you glad to be home? As soon as people say that question, they almost start to reverse and realize, like, well, well, well we realize you're not home. Like, your home is Ethiopia, but, but, like, and before they can say anything, I'm like, hey, we're glad to be here. We're, we're glad to be here visiting friends, visiting family. And I can honestly say that Margaret and I, we're really glad to be here with you at, uh, at First of Ann. Well, um, we're in the midst of uh, our third year of life in Ethiopia. And our third year, our first two years, Margaret and I were very much, we want to make sure our kids, we moved at an unusual season of life. Margaret and I, in our mid-40s, we took kids that three of them are teenagers. You read any missionary, um, any missiology, I think those are on the do not do list. Um, but the Lord really made it very, very clear. So we kept our focus very simple. We're going to focus on the church and focus on our family, make sure they're doing well. And about this turn into year three, I really realized I'm at a low spot. First two years, I'm like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe what the Lord's allowing me to do. I can't believe this place. I can't believe the, this ministry. God, why would you even let me be here? But year three, I began to feel this really low. I felt distant from the Lord, spiritually low, uh, physically low, men mentally low. It's just like I felt lower than I'd been in a, in a long time. And then on January 17th, I received a phone call from my father-in-law uh, sharing with me the news of a, of a plane crash that involved um, my brother-in-law. It involved a ministry partner and dear friend of, who I'd worked with for 18 years. Uh, involved a, a man who had served as a mentor to me. And it really felt like our bottom fell out. You know, we went from being low to where are we now? So within 24 hours, I put my wife on a plane, sent her back here to Memphis to be with her, her sister who had just lost her husband. We, um, I came shortly thereafter. Uh, we left our kids in Ethiopia. We're so blessed with amazing friends in Ethiopia. We can just be like, what are the kids going to do? I don't know, but friends have them. So we just left them uh, there in Ethiopia. But it was really a, a very hard, low season that we've been in. We've been feeling it. And my wife has a, a great gift of discernment. I've learned that when she tells me something, oftentimes she's right on, and it's just a matter of time before that truth is revealed. About a year and a half ago, she signed us up for a, a conference called the Breathe Conference. It's aimed at missionaries serving in, in places that are uh, more difficult for various reasons. So uh, we thought we need to go for our kids. We've got children that are going to be uh, graduating soon and heading back, heading off to college, and we need to go and allow them to be a part of this conference that's designed for families living abroad, not really knowing how timely and how much 
Margaret and I needed it. So we arrived, again, a rough place, this one, Switzerland. It's where the conference was. Beautiful place. And uh, we were meeting with, with one of our, our counselors there. And they asked, he said, hey, what are your expectations for this week? And I just thought, I have no idea. My last two months before, uh, and this was in late June that we were at this conference, my last two months before that, I had been going so fast and so hard and so busy that I had no time to think. I said, I think my only expectation is to turn off all the things I've been doing, to shut down for just a moment, and, and to do what the conference says, just breathe a little bit. Well, our second day there, my uh, third son was running and just playing. Very harmless, nothing crazy. Usually something crazy when this happens, but nothing. And he breaks his arm, falls and breaks his arm. And we know it's broken. His hand is sticking straight up like this. So he's, it's a brutal, gruesome compound fracture. And uh, we have to take him to the emergency room in Switzerland. So we arrive that night at the emergency room, and we're there for five hours. Now, only one parent could go back with, with my son, so we chose the more compassionate, nurturing parents. My wife went, and I, I sat in the waiting room. I'm, I've struggled greatly with patience my whole life. I do things fast. I try to move too fast. I've always struggled with that. That's why God, I guess, sent me to Ethiopia. Part of the reason, because nothing moves fast. And I'm just sitting in a waiting room, waiting. My phone's out. Nothing to do. And I feel like I'm going crazy just waiting. I'm not very good at waiting. We had to take him back two days later because the arm didn't get set correctly. We took him back at 8 a.m. I dropped him and Margaret off. I didn't pick him up till 11.30 p.m. Fifteen and a half hours that day of just waiting. Any news? Anything going on? What's happening? I don't like to wait. I'm not very good at it. And today in the passage that we saw, Abraham, he's in the waiting room. One of the things I love about the Bible I think the older I get, I love it more and more. It's how the heroes, what we call the heroes of Scripture, their lives are often very messy. Their lives aren't, aren't neat and clean and perfect and everything's working out the way it should be. Their lives are often messy. They're up and down. You know, just the chapter before this, in chapter 15, verse 6, we get one of the key verses of the Old Testament. People will often ask, hey, in the Old Testament, how was a person saved? What, what, what saved a person in the Old Testament? I think chapter 15, verse 6 is the clearest on that. It reads in the, in the ESV, it says, and he believed, meaning Abram, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That word counted if you ever planned an event, you'll be counting. How many people are we anticipating? Somebody will say, hey, I'm planning to come. Good, we've got you counted in our list. We're planning on you being there. The NASB and the NIV, 
both translate this verse and use the word credited as righteous. Now that's always stuck with me. Abraham believed God and he was credited as being a righteous, a righteousness that he didn't have. It wasn't his righteousness. It was given to him on credit. You see, we, most of us here use credit cards. Credit card, you go, you give it to someone, you received the goods or the services immediately, but you don't pay for it till the next month. Or for some, it may be a month after, a month after. Hopefully that interest doesn't just grow and grow, right? But you receive it right now, but it's not paid for till later. That's Old Testament salvation. Their salvation. How is a person in the Old Testament saved? The exact same way that you and I are saved through the blood of the Lamb, through the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the only way to come to God. He's the one who saves. In the Old Testament, it's on credit. Somebody's got to pay this bill. The interest is growing. Your sin interest is multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And Jesus comes and wipes it all clean. He pays the totality of that bill. And that's what we see. Abraham has just had that experience. Think about it. He's just been declared righteous. A righteousness that I believe is a righteousness that means that it's not his own. It's from God. That he is saved. He is secure. And now how's he going to live? How's he going to do living by faith? Chapter 16, verse 1, tells us that Sarai, Abram's wife, had bore him no children. In that culture, that was a great shame for a woman to have no children. Some of you experience what Abraham and Sarai are experiencing. Every month, hope. Maybe this month. This will be the month. And then no, not this month. Then the next month, and the next month, and the next month. Waiting, waiting, waiting. God had made Abraham a promise. He had promised him. He said, you will have a child. You're going to be a great nation. Abraham tried to make his uh, nephew, Lot, no. His servant, Eliezer, no. He's coming from your body. We know that this child is coming from the body of Abram. So we're told that his wife Sarai comes up with an idea. They have a maidservant named Hagar. And scripture is very clear on this over and over again. It always calls her Hagar the Egyptian. A female Egyptian servant. It makes it clear that she's from Egypt for a reason. And his wife comes up with this idea. Hey, sleep with my servant and I'll have a child through her. Now that was a common practice for a woman who could not have children. They now obviously have the technology or the, the helps or any of those things that we do today that so often when people are struggling, they can go and look at how can the Lord bring us a family. So they would often say, maybe through this young woman, we'll have a child. So that's the plan. Now it says at the end of verse 2, it doesn't say Abram went and prayed. 
It doesn't say he consulted the Lord. It simply says, Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai. Didn't take much convincing. His wife says, sleep with this young woman. Abram goes, all right, I'll do that. Verse 3, Abram, they had lived 10 years in Canaan. 10 years. Now, in this culture, after a woman had had no children for 10 years, it was acceptable and permissible often for a man to leave that woman. That sounds harsh and cruel, but that's just the way it was. Scripture makes it clear. 10 years. He has this woman from Egypt. Now, this young woman, Hagar, why was this Egyptian with Sarai and Abram? Well, if you go back to chapter 12, you'll see this. You'll see Abram. God just promised, you're going to be a mighty nation. But Abram, he's hungry. There's a famine. Now, he should have gone, God, I'm not going to starve to death. You're not going to let me starve to death. So you give me the solution. You guide me on this thing. Instead, he goes, there's food in Egypt. We're going to get it. Because Abram's hungry, he goes to Egypt. And when he leaves Egypt, he lies about his wife, but he leaves. He also leaves with a young woman named Hagar. And this child, this child born to Sarai, I mean, born to Hagar and Abram, it's a child of his own works. For a young woman to have a, a child, there's, that's a, we might call it a normal miracle. Every child we can say is a miracle, but it's normal. It doesn't make the news. We're not amazed that a young woman has a baby. Now, when a 90-year-old woman has a baby, that is global news. Everybody talks about that. But they have a child by their own means, their, their own effort, their, their own plan. They don't consult God and say, is this how you want us to do this? Is this right? Is this what you would have for us? Is, they do it by their own effort. We often do that. We mentioned earlier, this week's been an uncomfortable week, right? No power for many. I don't, I don't like being in Memphis without power. <laughs> it's hot. It's not easy. Many no water. Man, we've got to have water. And what, what do we do? When those things happen, if you're like me, most other people, you go, I'm going to go to the grocery and buy some water. We're going to have water here. We're hot. I'm going to turn on some fans if I can uh, find one that runs on a battery. I'm going to get a generator. I'm going to do whatever I can to take care of this problem. That's the way Abram is operating. Hungry? Go to Egypt. No children? We'll have one with her. He's figuring it out on his own. We all do that. And look at what when, the, when she finds she's pregnant, Sarai runs Hagar off, and Hagar leaves. Should be no surprise that Sarai and Hagar struggle to get along when this thing happens. But it's at the river, at this stream of water where the Lord comes and meets her. And the Lord begins to tell her that she's going to have a son. He's going to have a multitude come from him. And she also tells him this about this son, the name Ishmael. You'll name him Ishmael. That means God hears. God has heard you, Hagar. But then he tells him some interesting things about this uh, 
boy that'll grow to a man, he'll be a wild donkey of a man. Now, mothers, particularly mothers of boys, that's all we have. That's all I can speak to. We have four boys. But boys have some energy. But think if you were told this one is going to be a wild donkey of a man. You'd be like, whoa, <laughs> I don't know if we're ready for that. And then you're told his hand's going to be against everybody. Everybody's hand will be against him. This sounds like a very difficult son that's coming. What's interesting about chapter 16, it's a, ver a chapter that we often overlook in Genesis. We often just read past it. Chapter 16 has impacted our world like few other chapters of the Bible. Oh, there's, there's chapters. Genesis 3, the fall, you've got to understand that. That's impacted our world more than anything. The death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ, those are the, the things that have impacted our world more than anything. But in between those, and there's other things we see in Scripture where the world today we live in is greatly impacted. I had to... Um, had a young man that came and served with us in Ethiopia for nine months. And it's hard to get visas and do those things in Ethiopia. So we found out two days before that he wasn't going to get his visa renewed. So we had to leave the country and come back in. So, so I said, hey, I'll go with you. Where's the cheapest place we can fly? Two days notice. we got to leave in two days. We're going to do a one-day trip and come right back. Let's just do that. I'll go with you so you don't have to go alone. We find the cheapest place to go is Saudi Arabia. I'm like, great. I've, I've never been to Saudi Arabia. I tell Mar, I'm so excited. I'm like, we're going to Saudi Arabia. I don't think she was quite as excited as I was. It was 2019 was the first time they allowed um, Westerners to get visas to go there. We board the plane. We realize... This is unlike any plane trip I've ever been on. I look around, probably 80% of the plane was women. Muslim women wearing their coverings with shirts that said things like going to serve and all these things. They were, 80% of the plane was women who presumably, who I believe were going to work in Saudi homes as servants and do those sorts of things. The other 20% was Saudi, was, was men from all over Africa who were wearing white, uh, looked like towels to me, covered in white towels, going to do a pilgrimage to Mecca. Because where we were flying was Jeddah. Jeddah is an hour from Mecca. If you're going to go to Mecca, you have to go through Jeddah. So that's where we flew. And I realized as we fly there, we're flying and we're going to the people of Ishmael. You see, Ishmael's descendants would go and settle in what is current-day Saudi Arabia. They would become the Arab people. And, and the Arab people, they worshipped a multitude of gods. They worshipped 360 gods. And each year, the Arab people would gather at Mecca. And they would come to this thing called the Kaaba. It means cube. And all the 360 gods were believed to be housed in the Kaaba, and they would all come and worship there. Well, in 610 A.D., a businessman, 40 years old, 
began to have visions. He said they came from Gabriel. He was out in a cave right near Mecca, and he began to share those visions with his uncle. His uncle began to write those down. He began to preach, and as he preached his message, he said, there is one God. It's the ruler of all the other household gods. They're not real gods. There's one God. He said that God is Allah. Well, the people of Mecca did not like that. Everybody comes there to worship the 360 gods. So he was forced to leave with 70 families to flee Mecca. And he went up 250 miles to the north, went to a city called Medina. And in Medina, he began to meet with some Jewish tribes. And here's what he realized. The Arab people. We are descendants of Ishmael. We come from Abraham. That's our lineage. We're the children of Ishmael. We have a link. We're the brothers of the Christians. We're the brothers of the Jewish people. He began to pray toward Jerusalem. There was a battle. He was actually a somewhat, seems like, brilliant military strategist. He was outnumbered three to one, called the Battle of the Trench. He won the battle quite easily. After that, he went back to Mecca, and they literally swung open the city doors and said, come on in, you're in charge. He kept the Kaaba, said, hey, the Kaaba, everybody is going to worship one God, and you come to the Kaaba, and you worship the one God here. And to this day, Muslims go to Mecca and worship at the Kaaba. You'll see them walking around this big black box there at this huge mosque that can hold... Uh, like a million people, it's massive. Children of Ishmael. Children of works. You ask a Muslim, can you be assured of heaven? That is offensive. No Muslim would say that you could be assured of heaven. You cannot have assurance. You can hope that the scales of righteousness, of good deeds, outweigh the scales of bad. You get points for various things. It's a religion of works. Just like every religion, it's not Christianity. But some might call false religion. It's all based on works. And where did it come from? I'm hungry. Should we pray to God? He said he's gonna, we're going to have a child. He's not going to let us die. No, let's go to Egypt. We'll get some food there. Oh, but we need to lie and tell them you're my sister. You got to go. You lied to me. But here, take these things. Take these material blessings. That's why you came here. Take them and leave. That's what you want. Take this servant Hagar with you. We don't have any children. God said it's coming from my own body. Sleep with Hagar. Have a child by Hagar. From that comes a religion of works. At the end of verse 16, the end of the chapter, it says Abraham was 86 years old. He didn't like waiting very much. The very first verse of chapter 17 says Abram was 99 years old. Math's very simple. 13 years have passed. 
13 more years of waiting for this promised child. It seems as if God said, you're going to raise Ishmael to the point he's a man in our culture. When he's 13, then you're going to receive the child of promise. And at 100, Sarai 90, Isaac's born, a child of faith, a miraculous birth. And that's our faith lineage. We're not saved by works. Grace is so radical. It's nothing we do. You see, Abraham, right after he's declared righteous, we see him in a mess. He makes a major mess of his life right after he's declared righteous. Any of you ever feel like that? God, I just keep struggling, make a mess, I don't want to. It's based on faith. It's not based on our works. That's what's so radical and glorious and beautiful about Christianity. There's been several things the Lord's had me doing and waiting on. Um, I don't know if the Lord ever does this to you. I suspect he does. Sometimes the Lord will put things before you that you're like, I really don't want to do that, Lord. Like, I moved to Ethiopia. Uh, I didn't think I'm going there to do these building projects the Lord had. I'm like, I, I don't want to do these. One of them, the, the least glamorous building project I've ever seen, probably in the history of missions that I know of, we are building a retaining wall to protect our church. And um, to keep it short, I was kept asking the Lord, I do not want to do this. Telling the Lord, I did not move to Ethiopia to do this. This is not what I want to do. I'm not here to do this. And the Lord kept saying, this is what I got you here. This is part of the reason you stay faithful. This year I had our several engineers from our church working on these projects and giving me estimates, and we couldn't get anything going. I had the guy in charge of the project quit. And right before Easter, my wife looked at me, and she, she could tell I was not doing well. It's like, I'm tired of this. Everybody's quitting. We can't get anything going. On Good Friday, I, I received a text. A man I did not know, he texted me and said, hey, I'm in Ethiopia for a couple weeks, want to meet you. Like, great. If you'll be at church, try to find me. That Sunday, Easter Sunday, I met this man named Wick Jackson. Probably six foot four, 300 pounds, huge man. And he said, hey, I, I lived here 30 years ago. And I said, really? So said, what'd you do? He said, I built the church. I was like, well, what do you mean you built the church? He said, literally, I oversaw 200 people and we literally built the church. So that day I said, well, hey, come tell, me that, come tell that story to our staff on Tuesday. And he said, great, I'll do that. On Easter Sunday, I sent him a few pictures and the project analysis. And I said, hey, listen, I think this project is out of hand. I'm very frustrated about it. Will you just give me your opinion? Tuesday morning, I walk in, and he greets me, and he says, Hey, we got a problem. That's not going to stand. We've got a crisis. We've got an emergency. We've got to do something right now. I was like, people are telling me that, but I'm stuck. I can't get it going. He said, Well, I can fix it. Oh, great, you're here for two weeks. I don't get that. 
After meeting with our staff, he looked at me and he said, hey, I'm serious. If you'll clear things up and let me just work, I'll fix that. He stayed for four months. Two-week mission trip. Stayed for four months. Started with 12 guys, grew the team to 54, saw 13 of them come to Christ, had a Bible study with 20 of these workers just doing this project. That's not glamorous, but it's a crisis. Right when I'm at the end of my ropes, I go, God, you do care about the birds of the air. You do care about the lilies of the field. You care about these things that sometimes I look at and I go, God, that's just not what I want to be doing. As the project was getting started, I got invited by a ministry partner to go out to this area um, I'd never visited. It's, it's an area of Ethiopia that's 99.9999% Muslim. It's a harsh area. I went out there and I was like, I don't know how anybody can live here. It's very difficult. And this partner took us on a drive. We went on a four-hour drive across the country and then back across this region. And he would start telling us stories about all the people that live there. And he said, hey, there's 59 unreached peoples right here in this area. And we would drive by and he'd look down, he'd see a village or a small town, he'd say, there's the Bulgari people. Nobody's there, completely unreached, unengaged. We go to the next group. He'd say their name, unengaged, unengaged, unreached. This went on for like three hours of driving cross country. Just every time we'd pass a new village, there's so-and-so, no Christian witnesses. You just begin to feel the weight of this. Oh, gosh, it just feels so heavy. And I get why nobody's there. The unreached places, they're hard. The places where the gospel's not going forth, they don't want you coming. They're difficult places, and they're a challenge. He told us stories of people who'd come in there sloppily and had been kicked out at one after another after another. This guy's lived there for a long time. He understands the area. He said, I'm praying that we'll raise up people from Ethiopia that can be trained and equipped to effectively go to these areas. When I got back from that trip back to Addis, I had a call from the East Africa Sending Agency. That's the largest agency in Africa that's sending Africans as missionaries. We've sent one up to North Africa. We're about to send our second one out soon. First missionaries our church has ever sent that were Ethiopian. And they sat and they said, we, we want to send more. We want to send more people from your church to these places because we see that they're equipped cross-culturally. They gave me a whole list of things. And in the midst of looking, going, why are we building that stinking wall? I know we need it, but Lord, it doesn't excite me. Lord looks and goes, I can take things and multiply them for generations to reach the children of Ishmael. As we were driving through that, I'm like, these are the children of Ishmael. No one's going to them. The fewest missionaries are sent to Muslim peoples. One missionary for every 405,000 people. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. 
Most trips, my wife, we have a joke when I come back, she'll say, well, are we moving to that country or moving to that place? She said, are we moving out there? I said, I said we couldn't make it. It's hard. Maybe the Lord will allow us to be a part of sending people. May the Lord allow us to be a part of that in some way. I don't understand, the God, I don't understand God's timing. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was walking on this earth. He left his disciples. He said, I'm coming back. We're still waiting. God, why aren't you going and reaching those people? Steve, my timing's different from you. God, why aren't you fixing these projects? My time is different than you. Wait. Be patient. God often puts us in the waiting room. We don't do very well. We don't like waiting. So when people say, that simple question, are you glad to be home? I get what they're asking. It doesn't bother me. But more and more I think, this isn't my home. Memphis isn't my home. Well, I love Memphis. I lived here 20 years. I love this city. But it's not my home. I love Ethiopia. But it's not my home. I keep coming back to Revelation Revelation 7, 9, where it says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in right, waving palm branches, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That's our home. That's where we're headed. That's going to be our reality one day. We're going to be standing before a throne, worshiping with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, saying, salvation is from God. Not my works. Not my efforts. It's from God and from the Lamb who was slain. That's where salvation comes from. That's our home. For us who have trusted in Christ, we get tempted to build our homes here on this earth. Security, comfort, ease. I like all those things. I don't have a problem with a person going, hey, I like those things. That's normal. But there's a fine line where we start to go, I live for those things. See, it's a different thing to go, hey, I, I like those things. I'll take them. You give me comfort, you give me ease. I'll take it, God then it's a fine line where we live for that. And sometimes God shakes that up. This week he reminds you, you like electricity, you like air conditioning, that's not a bad thing, you don't live for it. I'll turn it off. This world is not your home. You like water, you need it to live. This world is not your home. The Lord will not allow you to get too comfortable here. Because it's in your home. But we're going there. We're headed there. And one day we're going to be there and we're going to look. And we're going to see the children of Ishmael. And I pray that when we see them, we look and we go, hey, my church prayed for you. We sent people to you. We, we knew the gospel hadn't gone forth there and we wanted to see it. We asked, Lord, how can you use us?
We even sent people to go there. And you look and you say, I'm glad you're here at the banquet of the Lamb. I'm glad you're in your eternal home. That's where we're headed. But for now, first of Anne, we're in the waiting room. We're waiting to go home. How are we doing in the waiting room? We may struggle. We may be reminded that we need Jesus over and over again and that we're not home yet. But until he brings us home, may we be faithful to worship the Lamb, to love the Lamb, and declare that salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, if there's anything I've said or didn't recall that needed to be said, I pray that you'd fill those gaps. But Lord, if there's anything that comes from your word that is true, allow that to land on our hearts well. Lord, if there's anything I've said that's of my own flesh or my own um, struggle with self, Lord, I pray that that would be removed and fall on deaf ears so that people can see clearly the glory of the Lamb who was slain. That we can know that in the midst of this fallen world, our hope is firmly, securely found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for the children of Ishmael, oh Lord, how often have we been guilty of plans by our own hand? And Lord, Abraham's plan of his own hand, I'm hungry. I can have a child by this woman. Lord, we still see the ripple of that today. But Lord, don't let us respond in fear. Don't let us respond in hatred. Don't let us respond by living as children of works, but may we respond in a Christ-like nature of love, grace, mercy, speaking the truth with wisdom and love to the children of Ishmael. Lord, we lift up those unreached places where the gospel doesn't go forth. We know they're difficult. But Lord, we know there's nothing too difficult for you. So may we be faithful in the waiting room, we pray. Amen.